0: What's up traders, Anthony Crudelli here and welcome to the Futures Radio Show podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Elthea Spinozi, also known as the Bond Girl. She's the head of fixed income strategy at Saxo Bank and a well-renowned industry expert on the bond market. We'll discuss the current interest rate environment and its impact on US equities, what Elthea's projection is for inflation and rate cuts this year, the risk reward for buying treasuries or bonds right now, and how she anticipates the rate environment for the remainder of 2024. Let's get started. Today's podcast is sponsored by TradeStation. Serious futures traders level up your skills with TradeStation's powerful platform. Enjoy flexibility, superior trading power, and save big with 50% off brokerage fees for the life of your account. Open a new futures account today at tradestation.com slash Anthony, and you'll also get 10% intraday margin rates, on three popular futures markets. Discover why TradeStation is my go-to platform for trading options on futures. Explore the robust platform now at tradestation.com slash anthony. Althea, welcome to the show.
1: Hello, Anthony. Thank you very much for having me here.
0: Oh, it's great to have you here. Of course, I found you on Twitter and became a big fan of your channel. The Bond Girl. I love the nickname. I know, obviously, there's a little James Bond plus, obviously, Bond Market uh, in there. How, how did you get that nickname?
1: Oh, it's just that uh, it's hard to find the girls uh, in the bond market, right? It's uh, more like a male driven uh, sector. And I think that it's important to have a little bit of fun while working. So why not the bond girls? <laughs>
0: That's right. You know, I look for channels on Twitter on X that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of smart people out there, but I like to find the channels that can explain stuff to us that we could actually use as traders and investors. You know, there's obviously so many people out there that just want to sound smart on X, but you do an absolutely fantastic job of explaining the bond market in a way. And look, I've been in this business for 25 years. Even someone like myself, I'm not a bond trader. I, I need someone to explain it the way that you do. I, I really do appreciate that.
1: Thank you very much. Can I call you Tony?
0: Of course. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look at... This could be the best looking podcast I'm going to do all year, everybody. If you're listening to this on audio, you've got, uh, we were just talking about this beforehand. We got the American Italian in here and we got the real Italian in here. Okay. Uh, Althea and I were talking about how in Bari, where my grandparents are from, how they're still making pasta on the street. They take it inside after they're making it fresh, make it and then bring it right out. Is that right, Althea?
1: Absolutely. You have to go. Everybody should go to Italy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Let's dig into today some of the things that we're going to discuss. We talked about the complexities of the bond market, and I think that for many equity traders, the majority of the traders, the day traders out there, the swing traders, the investors are mostly looking at stocks. They're not necessarily looking at bonds. You obviously have the sophisticated ones that are. But how do you navigate the complexities of the bond market, particularly for investors who may be new to this asset class?
1: well i believe that uh, when uh, one approaches uh, the bond market uh, should start to talk about cost of funding so what's my benchmark government benchmark and hence uh, we are talking about uh, us uh, treasuries and uh, really these uh, your government benchmark is going to drive the cost of funding for virtually everything mortgages uh, corporate bonds uh, and the higher it gets, uh, the more challenging uh, the business environment uh, is going to become. Um, so I think that, that today that uh, we are coming uh, from bull stock market uh, with uh, the standard and poor gro- growing uh, 25% in 2023 and uh, yields also growing, uh, like rising uh, to the highest that uh, we have seen uh, since before the global financial uh, crisis is a setting up a very interesting macroeconomic environment and, uh, and bonds are gaining a lot of spotlight because for the first time in many, many years, they are providing an alternative. And I know, Tony, what they're going to tell me, you know, like U.S. Treasuries at, you know, let's say 10 years, U.S. Treasuries at 4.2% or even three months TBLs at 5.3%. They cannot beat the stock market that is uh, rising 25% and the like 50% in one year. Yes, it's right. But uh, what really bonds uh, are providing uh, right now is uh, some sort of diversification. So if uh, you have uh, a stock portfolio, and uh, you're starting to believe that uh, the growth uh, you have seen uh, in the past couple of years is not sustainable uh, long term. And uh, there is the risk that something might break. Well, bonds are a great instrument uh, to add to one portfolio, because uh, if it's true that they lose if uh, yields continue to rise. But we have central banks now telling us that they shouldn't because they are preparing to cut rates, not to rise uh, hike them. And if they drop, uh, they, they can uh, definitely uh, boost uh, your, your returns. And normally I make uh, this example, the 10-year U.S. Treasury example, just uh, to understand uh, the risk and reward ratio that these instruments are providing right now. So if you buy today 10-year U.S. Treasuries at 4.2% and uh, you expect to hold them for one year, if within this time frame, yields rise to 5.2%, you're going to lose more or less 3%. But if yields drop to 3.3%, because there is a downturn, uh, like we said before, well, you're going to make 12%. So it, does it make sense to have the risk to lose 3% in a diversified portfolio if you believe that something might change in the foreseeable future? I believe that, that it makes sense. Obviously, this kind of risk-reward ratio changes according to the tenor we are looking at. So the 10 years is going to provide some sort of benefit, but the 30 years uh, is going to be much more risky than, for example, the two years, uh, which is almost uh, basically a win-win scenario. It's almost impossible right now to lose money in the two years.
0: A couple of things. First, I want to stay on that uh, real quick. I thank you so much for that explanation of the 10-year, that 3% possible risk versus a 12% gain, especially right now, in a market that's potentially looking at, what, three cuts? I Everyone mean, went from six to three. I mean, the bottom line is looking forward, whether we're gonna get to this, I'm sure, of course, at some point, Althea, whether we think it's three or less or more f- from your perspective. But in this environment, it, it, that's a great risk reward for any trader or investor, 3% risk to make 12% all day long you take that. Uh, especially if you've had some uh, runs in some of these tech stocks, why not allocate some of those gains there? But I want you to just quickly go over why, the two-year yield versus the 30-year yield, uh, the difference, obviously, is because of the volatility within those bonds or treasuries. Why you say there's almost no risk in the two-year, but there's greater risk in the 30-year?
1: Well, the two-year U.S. treasury yield is an expression of uh, monetary policies. So basically, it's pretty much linked to the expectations of what the Federal Reserve is going to do in the foreseeable future. And uh, that's why the front part of the yield curve has risen accordingly in uh, the past uh, couple of years, because the Federal Reserve was hiking and the two years was following. The 10 years, instead, was uh, rising at a slower pace, because as the Federal Reserve was hiking, uh, investors grew more anxious that something might break on the way. So they were better buying the 10 years where they were staying there in a sort of protection. And that's why the yield curve started to bear flatten. So basically short-term yields rose faster than long-term yields. The reason why I say that in the two years is almost impossible to lose money is that you need the Federal Reserve to continue to hike rates aggressively. And that now that the inflation is much lower than what it was one year ago, you know, it's true that there is always the risk of the Federal Reserve to deliver another hike, but uh, it would need to deliver three or four hikes in order to, to make sense in the two years. So when we do that risk reward uh, kind of analysis on the two years, you see everything green in the meaning that you assume to buy today. Two-year U.S. Treasuries at 5.3%. If that yield goes up by 200 basis points, so we are talking 7.3%. You would start to lose money there. But if the yield drops 100 basis points, you will make around five, five and a half, a little bit more, right? But not as much as, for example, as the 10 years. So really, if you are in the two years, it's almost like parking money at this point of time, if waiting for better opportunities. It's different when we do this kind of risk and reward analysis, when we look at ultra long uh, government bonds. Uh, so, for example, the 30 years, because at that point, it's a much more directional bet on uh, how fast the Federal Reserve is going to cut rates. So if you have yields rising by 100 basis points, uh, you're going to lose uh, 17%. But if yields in the 30 years tenor is go- are going to drop by 100 basis points, well, you're going to make uh, more or less 20%. But obviously, it's more skewed, this kind of bet, than, for example, the 10 years or even the two years where there is virtually almost no risk that we are going to see two-year U.S. treasuries at 7%. At least, it doesn't seem so right now. Uh,
0: thank you so much for explaining that. Quickly, before we move on, I'm sure some people out there probably don't understand the difference between a treasury and a bond. Can you just quickly explain to them what the difference is between the two?
1: So U.S. treasuries can be notes, bonds, and bills. So the name bills refers to bonds up to two years' maturity, below two years' maturities. Nodes are normally between two years and ten years in tenure, and instead, bonds are whatever from ten years up. So the ten years can be nodes or bonds. And U.S. Treasuries, I'm just referring to the government bonds or notes that are issued by the U.S. Treasury in
0: the United States. Yep, that's why when you look at the futures markets, everybody says 10-year Treasury, 30-year bonds. And I know there's so much conversation out there. Some people will say bonds or Treasuries and they kind of commingle them. But thank you so much, Althea, for explaining the difference between them. How much of this current rally is a byproduct of the projected rate cuts?
1: Are you referring to the bond rally that we have seen since uh, November until uh,
0: recently? Let's talk about the equities first.
1: I think it's a little bit of a mix. You see, it's not only stocks that are going up. And um, a lot of my job is uh, to look and uh, to turn every stone to see if there is uh, some pockets of distress or opportunities out there. And every stone I've been turning as of recently has shown me that uh, there is no stress, that everything is happy-go-lucky. <laughs> so the biggest example is the corporate bond market. Corporate bond spreads uh, have tightened to the most uh, since uh, pre-COVID. It means that if you buy corporate bond, it can be high yield or investment grade. Today, you are going to be paid over US treasuries more or less what you were going to be paid uh, before uh, pre-COVID. And uh, this is despite the Fed fund rate uh, went more than double within that uh, same uh, period of time. Obviously, Anthony, I have, uh, when we talk about spread, because I'm not sure if uh, everybody is comfortable with this uh, terminology, what uh, we are talking about is with, uh, about that pickup uh, that a corporate bond uh, is uh, paying uh, over uh, the U.S. Treasuries. So basically, I'm taking an investment grade bond that right now on average is paying around 5% minus a U.S. Treasury, which is around 4.3%. And that spread is telling me how much I get paid over U.S. Treasuries. But of course, if I look at the absolute yield level that these securities are paying me today, they pay me much more than what we have seen uh, uh, since the global financial crisis until today. So investment grade around uh, 5% and uh, high yield bonds uh, around uh, 8%. So it looks appealing on a surface, but when I look at the level of distress, I can see that the absolute amount I'm paid over the risk-free rate uh, is at a minimum. And uh, in my word, uh, it means that uh, something uh, that these kind of spreads uh, should widen and it's not, it's better to buy the sovereign rather than the corporate bond at this point in time.
0: I have been seeing some tweets, posts, now we call them on X, talking about how this is the tightest corporate bond spreads have been since 2008. You know, anytime someone brings up 2008 comparisons, you know, uh, you don't know if it's whether it's clickbait or if it's something that really matters. Does this matter?
1: I think it matters in a way that uh, it has been a very long time. 15 years is a very long time for us to get used to a different kind of financing environment. And that's true for uh, not only the corporate bond market, but also loans, mortgages, and so forth. So the big problem that we have right now is that how long can we survive at these yields and rates level? Because at a certain point, everybody is going to be to, to refinance. So Anthony, I think that it's very good to highlight that right now we didn't have much distress or much negative news coming from the corporate bond market or also loan market. Uh, for the simple reason that we have uh, not, we didn't have much maturities yet. They are going to pick up in the second half of this year and from January 2025 uh, forward. So if a company doesn't need to get refinance at high rates, uh, it can just wait uh, unless it's really cash strapped and really needs to raise money today. And that can obviously be a danger for that corporation because at that point, then investors would need to open up the balance sheet and understand if they want to invest in that corporate and they might demand a higher yield than, uh, than what the market is pricing currently. And that's why everybody's just trying to wait out the Federal Reserve is telling us that it's going to cut rates and everybody assumes that that's going to be positive at a certain point in September or December this year. But the big problem that I see is that the yield curve, the normalization of the yield curve from inversion to a steeper kind of curve might imply that the long end is going to rise and not drop at this point in time, depending on where inflation is going to stabilize. If inflation is going to move to 2%, then it's going to be positive for everything out there, the stock market included. If inflation is not going towards 2%, then the Federal Reserve has to be slower at cutting rates. And uh, the long part of the yield curve uh, might rise further because uh, bond investors, I'm sure that everybody heard the word uh, bond vigilantes, who are these bond vigilantes that sometimes uh, come in in the market and they demand more premium. Well, they are just the simple investors that they say these, that they look at the fair value of uh, a certain asset. It can be the 10-year US treasuries or the corporate bonds. And they say like, no, for me to buy this thing, I need to have a higher return because it carries much higher risk. And the problem is that, one, that if uh, there, is, there is a hiccup uh, along the way, we can have uh, bond vigilantes asking for a higher return premium exactly as it happened uh, in the last quarter of 2023 when the term premium moved above zero for the first time in, I don't know how many years, I think it was around a decade. But now it's again below zero. So he's telling us that they are sleeping, but they are there.
0: Yeah, that really helps, I think, a lot for the traders that are looking at equities. And it tells me as a trader, as an investor, I really have to keep an eye on the 30-year bond market when we get data points on inflation. Because if those rates start to go up quickly, that's going to have a significant impact on the overall stock market. Am I right, Althea?
1: Absolutely. It depends uh, which stocks are you looking at yeah. as well, in the meaning that uh, there is uh, tech stocks are uh, very famous to be exposed uh, to the very long part of the yield curve, uh, for example. But there is uh, other kind of sectors that uh, instead uh, are uh, normally financed uh, in, in the mid part of the yield curve uh, between five to ten years. But uh, Anthony, this conversation that we are having uh, regarding inflation and the possibility of yields in the long part of the yield curve rising, uh, it's including also the 10 years. Because uh, obviously, 10-year yields are now are at 4.2%. We see them uh, rising uh, to 5%. And I don't exclude uh, that we might see them rising again to 5%. And uh, there a is uh, three reason for that. The first reason is that what we talked about, inflation is just uh, can be sticky uh, or it might not drop to the 2% target of the Federal Reserve and therefore the Federal Reserve cannot cut rates accordingly. The second uh, reason is that that's the worst scenario that the market doesn't believe that inflation is under control and the Federal Reserve is going to cut within this time frame and therefore bond vigilantes are going to ask for a higher risk premium because they say inflation is not a done deal. I need to be compensated for that risk at this point of time. And the third reason is that the U.S. Treasury is preparing to issue an avalanche of uh, U.S. Treasuries in the second quarter of the year, the U.S. fiscal deficit is just massive. And according to the latest quarterly refunding and the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee report, it seems that the U.S. Treasury might issue more than $1 trillion worth in coupon issuance. And already by now, Anthony, as we speak, in February, we had a 10-year U.S. Treasury auction that uh, was the largest size ever, even above pandemic levels. It was around $42 billion. So it shows you that uh, this supply-demand problem is not really over. It's here to stay. And uh, it's just enough for one of these things to not to fall into place uh, for the 10 years to rise. So we might see again uh, the five years, uh, five years yield.
0: Yeah, no, I know. I got you. And so, yeah, seeing that 5%, it's interesting hearing you talk about this from the perspective of there's there's might just be too much supply and not enough demand at these rates. And that's what will potentially drive us to a 5%. You can even see it in the 10-year tape. I They trade it and swing trade the, the 10-year a lot. I mean, they cannot catch a rally and hold a rally. It just keeps continuing to drift lower this year. And as traders, we continue to say, is, this, is the market ever going to actually look at this and notice this? Because you can see rates continually are chipping higher. A couple of things I want to talk about. First is we've got some inflation data coming up, PCE this week. Where do you see inflation going forward from here?
1: Well, we as a bank, uh, we are a consensus, market consensus. So we believe that inflation will continue to decrease throughout the year. And eventually in 2025, we are going to hit the 2%, the 2% target. But we also recognize that the inflationary pressures this time around are like we haven't seen any time before. And uh, on the top of that, uh, we have uh, some geopolitical complications uh, that are putting us in motion a series of events that uh, might put uh, further pressure on inflation. So really, when we look at the 10-year U.S. Uh, Treasury, we recognize that it can move uh, in a range between uh, close to 3% up to 5%. And the reason for that is very, very easy. So when we look at the dot plot, uh, we see that the Federal Reserve is telling us that uh, the long-term neutral rate is at 2.5%. So whenever the market uh, reads faster than expected, that is inflationary forces, or, uh, you know, like years, there is going to be a downturn. Uh, the 10-year yields is trying to reach and price according to that long-term neutral rate that has been provided uh, by the Federal Reserve. And uh, it's normal to see U.S. treasuries fluctuate back and forth. And uh, when instead I look at the 5% mark, uh, what I have to keep in mind is uh, what market expects the long-term uh, neutral rate to be. And uh, right now, the bond futures market are telling me that the Fed fund rate uh, might not drop below 3.5% for the next 10 years. And if that's true, then I have to price the 10 years accordingly. And how do I price that? Well, I'm going to have a steeper yield curve. So the 10 years should price, you know, within 100 and 150 basis points over the Fed fund rate. And that is going to, is giving me a fair value on the 10 years between 4.5% and 5%. So this is the kind of range we are looking at. However, it's impossible for us to tell now whether... There is going to be a rebound of inflation because we are not there yet. But it's safe to assume that maybe the fight against inflation is not as straightforward as the market wants to believe because we have unemployment still very low. We have wages growing above trends and the economy overall remains resilient.
0: So, markets anticipating three rate cuts this year. What are you guys anticipating?
1: We believe that it's more or less right. What the market doesn't really price is the expectations of quantitative tightening. And uh, already last week with the release of the FOMC Minutes, we saw that uh, the Federal Reserve members uh, are going uh, to look at quantitative tightening in debt as soon as March. And that's going to be very important, because uh, right now quantitative tightening is putting a strain on, well, on financing conditions as much as uh, the level at which uh, uh, the Fed fund rate uh, is uh, set. So in the past hiking cycle, we estimate that the quantitative tightening has served as a couple of rate cuts. and we believe that also this year and uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future, uh, the tapering of a quantitative tightening or the end of quantitative uh, tightening can substitute some of those rate cuts. I expect quantitative uh, tightening to be tapered as soon as March. Not because there is the need to do that, but because the Federal Reserve has advertised very well the intention to do something with quantitative tightening and also the intentions to cut interest rates. And Tony, when did the Federal Reserve hint to such uh, intentions? In December, when the um, GDP or the quarterly GDP in the United States was a uh, growing above trend for five quarters in a row, and inflation was above 3%. So I believe that the Federal Reserve right now, this year, is not looking at inflation like it was looking at in 2023. It's looking at the soft landing. And the soft landing needs to be reached at, at all costs because in September we have uh, an election. And we can't stay here and debate about how apolitical the Federal Reserve is, but the Federal Reserve is formed by people that vote at the elections, and uh, the election constitutes uh, a macroeconomic event per se that uh, needs to be protected from volatility. Because if there is uh, volatility coming to elections, then uh, that can influence the outcome of those elections and that's why the federal reserve will taper quantitative tightening because they don't know very well where the level of ample reserve is so they want to arrive there very slowly now there is uh, ample reserves so and we have between uh, the reverse repo facility and uh, bank reserves that uh, we are over four trillion dollars which that's very ample but they want uh, to to ease uh, somehow the stress that is applied in the money market sector, especially in light of the BTFP program that is going to end in March, and they are going to deliver a rate cut because when you look at real interest rates, real rates are the highest we have seen since 2008 until today. So they are afraid something is going to break and they don't want it to break in the summer period, just before the US election. If that is going to be a good decision or not, we will know only by the end of the year when we have the report on inflationary pressures, because it takes time, obviously, for rate cuts to basically filter in into economy and maybe provoke another rebound of inflation. But there is that risk.
0: If I take everything in that you're talking about today, a couple of things come to my mind. First, we talk about the supply demand with bonds and how that in the short term is pushing yields higher You know, in the 10 year. Then we talk about the Federal Reserve, who's not supposed to be politically driven at all, is actually going to be cutting rates when they actually, the market is signaling something else. It sounds to me that the market's saying, don't be in a hurry to cut. It's not ready yet. But they're going to do it anyway because they're trying to squeeze in a soft landing as best they can or at least appear it to be that way heading into an election.
1: This is my, my personal opinion, but obviously yeah. it all comes down to the timing, right? Why did they yeah. announce it in December? You know, in December they didn't have, they were no, nowhere near to a soft landing or to any kind of landing than where they are today. So it makes sense also like in terms of schedule, right? Tapering of quantitative tightening in March, then a rate cut in June, another one in September and then December once every quarter. And that's going to be slower than, for example, uh, the market uh, is expecting. But, you know, like uh, I have actually a chart with me, but I didn't open up uh, my, my Excel. But I, I have a chart that basically shows uh, what stagflation, you know, like Stagflation in the 70s until today, and uh, the 10 year uh, US treasuries. And basically, the way that we measure stagflation is uh, with uh, unemployment plus inflation minus uh, growth. And uh, what that line is telling us is that uh, the more uh, the stagflationary environment, uh, the higher uh, US treasuries are going uh, to rise. And the reason is that. When you look at nominal bonds, they are a reflection of the nominal growth of a country, which includes inflation. So, right now, the 10 year US Treasury is telling me that we are heading towards a soft landing because it assumes growth around 2%, so a trend, plus the break even is around. 2.2, 2.3%, so basically it's telling me that we are getting very close uh, to 2% and that's a soft landing, but what, what if uh, that doesn't happen? Uh, what if uh, something else changes? What if uh, investors ask for a higher return premium? Then definitely we can go up uh, to 5%, but still going back to what we said at the beginning of the call, Tony, it makes sense if, if uh, one is a buy-to-hold investors holding uh, a stock portfolio. It makes sense uh, that kind of risk-reward that the 10 years uh, gives you. If you are instead an active trader that is trading short-term, obviously, you are going to put everything together. And while the front part of the yield curve, uh, it's done, you know, like the kind of rise in two-year yields to match the dot plot uh, has already run from the beginning of January until today. There is no more room to play with in that part of the yield curve. What uh, is left, what people are left with uh, is the long part of the yield curve that looks mispriced somehow at this point in time.
0: So how might these actions with the Fed cutting rates start to impact sentiment towards treasuries?
1: Well, it depends what inflation is. So if the Fed cuts rate right and inflation is under control and on the way to 2%, it should be bullish for, uh, for bonds, or at least bonds up to 10 years. Can, the first rate cut can be also bullish for the very long part of the yield curve. But if inflation stays uh, more or less where we see it today, so let's say below 3%, but in the high twos and it looks like it's stabilizing around that level, then that's bearish for bonds. And uh, also, it can provoke a further uh, bear flattening on the yield curve because at that point, the market will question itself whether another rate hike might happen and the Federal Reserve needs to pivot again.
0: Boy, it, it really tells us that we really need to be watching these auctions, right, Althea?
1: Absolutely. I watch them. Uh, well,
0: today. I know that you do. I think a lot more people need to be watching them right now. Too, Everybody, You're going to be having a lot of push and pull between what the Federal Reserve is doing versus what the actual market is willing to accept in terms of rates. And like you said, the supply and demand issue, I find that to be so interesting and in, in how volatile that could create not only in the, the treasuries and bond market, but in equities.
1: Absolutely. But I still think that these kind of auctions, the auctions that come from the U.S. Treasury should be absorbed. Uh, Anyhow, somehow. I don't think that is going to be a problem. Who's going to buy U.S. Treasury? Because there is going to be always demand. The real problem is that there might be volatility coming from them. And the biggest example is that last week we had a 20-year U.S. Uh, Treasury auction. And uh, it tailed. When an uh, auction tails, it means that the yield, the high yield at the auction, was higher than when issued, than what was traded just before the auction. And it's uh, just telling uh, that uh, investors might demand for a higher yield uh, to hold these securities than what the market was uh, pricing just a few seconds before. And uh, normally when that happens, uh, it can cause, it can intensify the sell-off of uh, U.S. treasuries and the rise in yields. So I'm looking at U.S. Treasury auctions because they are telling us uh, very important information, such as, for example, also the demand that comes from. You see, like I'm as a European investor, if I want to buy 10-year U.S. Treasuries and I have to hedge them against the euro currency with a three-month uh, euro-dollar future, then I'm going to secure around 2.7% in yield, which is around 50 basis points above uh, the 10-year bonds. That's good, yes, but if I look around uh, in Europe uh, to other European sovereigns, uh, well, I can secure up to 4% if I'm willing to buy Italy, for example. Okay, risky, but uh, Spain, it's around 2%. France uh, is around 2.7%. So, does it make sense for me to go and buy another uh, a position in another currency, hedge it when I can do that at home and be more comfortable with my investment?
0: Yeah, we didn't even get into the ECB or BOE today. I think that we have to have you on later in the year to extend that discussion. I want to end today just talking about the small caps a little bit because I talk about this a lot. I mean, the Russell. At the end of last year, had that explosive rally. So much of the Russell 2000 is tied to rates, and this year you could see that the market's just churning in the Russell 2000, sitting back waiting uh, to see what's going to happen in, in the rates market. Any thoughts on? I know that you're you're the bond girl, but I'm just curious what you think about this entire marketplace right now that you're seeing and how that potentially may have an impact on small caps, Russell 2000.
1: Small caps uh, normally rely on a shorter time of financing. So up to five years on average. And uh, normally they are high, they are a high yield uh, bonds. So when we look at their cost of funding, we have to look at the belly of the incur and how that behaves. Normally, when there is a steepening or a flattening of the yield curve, the belly is the first one to respond. So it's going to drop faster or rise faster. So it might be that if we have these inflationary trends continuing uh, and the Federal Reserve cutting gradually, that could be positive for the cost of funding uh, that these companies uh, are going uh, to price on, right, because it's going to lower. And um, the big problem is that if we have that kind of uh, tail scenario, um, in the meaning inflation not under control, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, pivoting again uh, towards uh, hikes and not cuts, well, that is going to uh, to be very negative for this part because uh, the the belly of the in curve is going to shift higher and these corporates needs to refinance uh, over that kind of uh, funding so i honestly believe that right now the chance uh, is uh, you know like tony people talk about soft landing hard landing no landing but when you really, when you really think through all these scenarios, even when you have a soft landing. A soft landing uh, means inflation is under control. The Federal Reserve is going to decrease rates, but is not going to cut rates uh, um, to levels uh, that, for example, we have seen post-COVID in 2021, right? Because that would be excessive. That would be like stimulating, again, the economy and inflation. So. They will need to stabilize somewhat higher. Well, it means that anyway, these corporate bonds are going to be somehow stressed for longer because a lot of the debt that they have been taking in the past, since COVID until now, so the last four years, has been based on those very low rates. And the longer... Rates are going to stay high. the more pr- probability is uh, to have uh, some sort of default. and uh, when in bond markets uh, we are having uh, the junkest of junk defaulting, uh, credit spreads react very fast, and everything is going to be very much alerted and and widening so I think that uh, there is going to be volatility in this, uh, in this part uh, of the market, uh, for sure. And uh, it, there is none now, but as we approach that wall of maturities that we were talking about before in the second half of the year, and the biggest uh, wall is in January 2025, that can spell trouble for this sector.
0: Althea? I can't thank you enough. I've just become such a huge fan of yours. Following you on Twitter not too long ago, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I could listen to you talk all day about the bond market. And like I said, I just think that you're just really fantastic. And everybody out there, you, you have to follow Althea on Twitter, follow what she's doing everywhere. Althea, where can people learn more about what you're doing? And also just obviously make sure you plug your Twitter channel.
1: Absolutely. Well, they can follow me on Twitter, obviously. I, I think that my Twitter name is Altea Spinozzi altogether. It has been a while. I don't check on that one. But also I publish regularly uh, analysis on uh, uh, saxo.com. We have uh, analysis, uh, me and my colleagues, uh, I'm uh, writing for bonds and uh, we have also other sections for equities, uh, macro and so forth. So and they, it's all uh, free. So anybody can access to it.
0: Yeah, everybody follow Althea on X and check out what she's doing at Saxo Bank. Althea, I can't thank you enough. I look forward to future conversations with you. So insightful today. Like I said, I love the way you explain everything to us. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Futures Radio Show podcast.
1: Thank you, Tony, for having me. And I'm looking forward to be back.